Everything is expensive these days, you know that. The government is printing trillions of dollars in consumer prices higher than ever. If the government continues its printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But there are a few things you can do right now. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect your money, your retirement, your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. Start with a short phone call, and they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or put inside your 401k or IRA. So please call or text them right now. Tell them Bill O'Reilly sent you. Call 877-444-GOLD, 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. Again, that's 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Welcome to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. Fannie Willis update. All we have for you is that the judge, McAfee, uh, is going to make a decision whether to boot Fannie Willis off the case late this week or early next. Okay? And um, obviously everybody is going to be curious to, uh, to see how the judge handles it. But I wanted to find out what the political climate is in um, Fulton County, Atlanta. So joining us from there is Dr. John Philippe Acevedo, teaches at Emory University School of Law. Nice to have you, doctor. So to me- Thank you so much for having me. I'm an outsider, but I know Fulton County, been there many times. To me, if I'm the judge, based upon what I heard in the courtroom, I boot Miss Willis off the case because there's just too much extracurricular activity on a very important case like this that is a total distraction and open up, opens up avenues of appeal by the Trump lawyers. So I boot her. Am I wrong? Yeah, so Judge McAfee really suggested that he was going to consider that as well. So last Monday before any of the witness testimony began, he said he was worried not only about actual conflicts of interest, but the appearance of conflicts of interest. So I don't think you're wrong. I think this is something on his mind. Uh, I don't envy his decision. But yeah, in criminal law in general, we don't want the appearance of impropriety. Okay. So judges have to make these decisions all the time about right and wrong, legal, illegal. So I'm sitting there, again, not a lawyer, never want to be a judge, but I'm seeing 
two people, the district attorney and her top investigator, involved in a romantic relationship during the investigation of Donald Trump and 19 others for vote interference. I'm seeing $700,000 paid to the boyfriend through Fannie Willis's office, and I'm seeing Ms. Willis take at least five luxury trips paid for by the boyfriend. To me, that opens up an investigation because if she didn't reimburse him, that would be illegal, correct? It's interesting. So here the receiving of gifts itself is not, it's the failure to disclose. And it's not clear she disclosed to anyone that she received these gifts. If she reimbursed them, then obviously there's nothing to disclose. There is no gift. But under Georgia law, if she received gifts and didn't disclose and didn't reimburse, uh, then she would be running afoul uh, of the Georgia disclosure rules. Okay, so here I am. I'm the judge again. And Ms. Willis comes in and says, yes, I reimburse for these trips in cash. I'm going, Yeah, and nobody does that. And if you did in cash, let's see your withdrawal slip from the bank because these trips were into the thousands of dollars. She says, I didn't withdraw money from the bank. I had it in, in my, under my bed because that's what black people do. I'm sorry, doctor. I'm not buying that as a judge. I'm not buying any of it at all. How about you? Yeah, so this is an interesting point she raised. It certainly flies in the face of anything most of us do in 2024. Uh, I myself struggle to have $10 in my pocket to tip someone if I need to. Uh, almost everything we do today is in credit cards, on our phones. The only part of it that kind of rang true was that her father was a 70s activist. Uh, and if you look at the activists from that era, a lot of them did afford cash in case they had to flee the government uh, on short notice. Again, does that translate to a district attorney in present-day Atlanta? It's certainly out of the norm for most people in their everyday experience, but that's when going to be left to the judge to determine uh, if he believes her. Uh, her father took the stand to back her up, uh, so we'll see. My no, father doesn't know. He's just being a theoretician. Now, there is word that the judge is under heavy pressure because of the political climate in Fulton County. It's a very left-wing county, very heavily Democrat. And that if he sanctions Miss Willis, that his career could be in jeopardy. What do you think about that? It's interesting, and this kind of hits to your point early on. He's having to balance uh, not wanting to get overturned on appeal. One thing judges don't want to do is go through an entire trial and then see an appeals court throw it out and have to start over. It's a massive waste of their time, money, effort, uh, irritates the jurors. So he really is in a bind here. Of, you know, he doesn't want to prematurely sanction uh, the district attorney's office. But on the other hand, to let it go all the way through and then have it overturned because he didn't remove her uh, is a huge cost as well. And what are the odds, in your opinion, being, you know, a, a legal scholar, if she, she stays on the case and it goes through and there is a conviction, what are the odds of it being overturned? 
from the evidence we've had now, again, assuming no new evidence, I think the odds are not great for being overturned. The odds of it being appealed are absolutely. I think any defense lawyer would uh, appeal this. Uh, it'd be, I think, malpractice not to appeal it. If you're the defense counsel, you have to zealously advocate for your clients. Uh, and that's whether it's a former president or just an average citizen. So I, I think here, again, even that review is going to cause issues. Uh, and again, you mentioned the political climate. I think the judge is mindful of that in two ways. On the one hand, uh, they're elected officials. They are going to run for re-election. On the other hand, you don't want to have a criminal trial and conviction in which the majority of people believe it's unfair because that'll undermine the entire criminal justice system. Yeah, but that breaks down on ideological uh, run. Final question. If this goes ahead and Fannie Willis does prosecute um, and she gets her convictions, 20 of them involved, and say she gets the lion's share, including Mr. Trump, it'll go to federal court after state court. If state turns down the appeals, it definitely go into the federal system with all of this stuff, would it not? Yeah, the all criminal defense can appeal if they have a federal issue to yep. the Supreme Court, and this would be a federal issue. It would be due process rights, that there was double dealing, financial improprieties would be what the defense would argue, and that most certainly could go to the Supreme Court. Okay, so wrapping up our discussion, and I want to thank you for being very straightforward, by the way, is a good discussion. If you're a judge and you know that, you know all of the problems that Ms. Willis has caused herself. Nobody else caused these problems. She did it. You move her out. If you're looking out for the cause of justice and the state of Georgia. That's my conclusion. Uh, and I think that's uh, one of the two we can reach. I mean, you think about it, this is an own goal. I, I don't think we can describe it any other way. Even if she's allowed to stay on the case, the jury pool is tainted against her to some degree. There's folks here in Fulton County already calling for a review of her other cases, particularly the supporters of Young Thug, uh, which is also a RICO indictment. Uh, so in that sense, the damage is done uh, in, yeah. in many ways to this case. I, I just want to... Yeah, I want to clarify to the audience. There's a guy named Young Thug, big kind uh, rapper in Atlanta. She went after him. Obviously, his people don't like her, so they're using this to uh, advance his cause. Hey, doctor, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Um, I can't make a prediction on this. I mean, I know what the right thing is. You get Fanny out of there. But the politics, boy. You're listening to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you, and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to The Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us from L.A., Aaron Cohen. He's founder of Cherry's Counter Terror, specializing in training law enforcement in violent situations. Can you explain why we don't know what happened at the Waffle House in Indianapolis and the Kansas City Parade? 
Can you tell me why we don't know what happened after all this time? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think it's exactly what you're leading into, Bill, which is that uh, we've got uh, political uh, uh, political uh, restraints being put on the ability to be able to deduce exactly who was behind the crime. I believe this was gang-related, which means that it's potentially black on black. It's a high possibility it was black on black. Uh, you know, I, the Midwest bill has been in a gang war that's been developing for the last 20 years. So let's we look at Kansas City. Kansas City, straight up, you had two black miners, black on black, opening fire at each other at this monster uh, uh, parade celebrating the Super Bowl. My question was, where was the security, uh, given the uh, the height of all the domestic threats that are coming in from all over the world, from you know, Iran to uh, uh, domestic terrorism here with the active shooters that are popping off. Where we're at in 2024, intelligence and information, regardless of who are committing these crimes, that information needs to be released and needs to be streamlined. And there can be no politics involved whatsoever. Otherwise, like you said, you're never going to get to the root of the problem. You're not going to get more patrol on the streets. You're not going to get these gang task force funded with more money, which they need not just in Kansas City, Bill, in Chicago. Uh, they just wrapped up a six-year investigation. Uh, again, gang on gang, south side and west side Chicago. Uh, a monster gang problem over the last 20 years. It's been growing and growing. The problem is these liberal cities aren't being honest about it. And what it's doing is it's affecting the frontline patrol and police officers' ability to be able to deal with it head on. And you cannot politic when it comes to crime, especially with this expanding game but they are problem they are and there's nobody except me reporting it i don't know anybody else reporting this story this sure. way now some stats african-americans comprise 13 percent of the american population 2022 52 percent of all homicides in the country were committed by african-americans okay 56 percent of murder victims african-american Again, 13% of the population. So you're just basically letting this, as you said, letting this go. There's no will to confront it at all. But if that Waffle House, that having a white guy shooting that poor black woman, you know it would be everywhere in this country. Is that racism? Uh, well, it's certainly a form of uh, uh, placism. I mean, I don't know how else to, how else to explain it. Uh, you're sort of nailing it. Uh, uh, again, if you're not honest about uh, uh, what it is that you're seeing with that shooting in Kansas City and with the shooting at the Waffle House, then you're unable to directly confront that threat head on, which is violent crime. Absolutely. And, and, you just read and, it, and it's worse than that. One of the ways that New York City confronted violent crime that worked under Giuliani and Bloomberg, the mayors, was stop and frisk. Because the cops know in their beats, in their precincts, who the gang guys are. Everybody knows that because they got tattoos, they run around, everybody knows. So they would stop them, frisk them, and find a lot of guns and then prosecute them on gun crimes. But stop and frisk, gone. So after that left, the rise in violent gangs 
doubled or tripled, and so did the violent crime. But there is no movement to bring back stop and frisk. Now, as a counterterrorism expert, do you believe in stop and frisk? Uh, not only do I believe in it, but uh, it, it's one of the critical layers of preventative uh, uh, measures that law enforcement needs. Look, Bill, you know, just because I come from the counterterrorism space, let me be clear, I spent the, I spent the last four, uh, 15 years working as a, a deputy uh, for a sheriff's agency on the East Coast, a nice size sheriff's agency, where I trained that agency in counterterrorism, but also active shooter response, which is that highest threat of, of response uh, uh, to violence. And what we saw in Kansas City was an active shooter. The fact that it was black on black or the fact that it was crime related or gang related, which is drug related, it, it, you still have the same uh, uh, effect at the end, the same violent outcome. Stop sure. and frisk is- It, terror, it terrorizes the community. I just wanna be clear. We don't know yet if these minors were members of gangs or if they're black. We heavily suspect that is the case, but we don't know. And I want, want everybody to understand it. Final question for you. When you put ethnicity, skin color, equity, whatever it may be, over honesty, then you have danger, public safety danger. That's my opinion. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Uh, you have to be brutally honest about shaping a mosaic to be able to look at the threat so that you can develop policies and procedures, Bill, to be able to combat those threats in order to protect these communities. That's the bottom line. I agree with you 100%. Law enforcement has the capability, but to be able to really do the job the way Giuliani did it, he was very effective. Stop and frisk is a must and being honest about the genesis of those threats to be able to categorize those gangs, to be able to, to look at that as a drug problem, the Mexican Sinaloa cartels with their fentanyl, with their crack cocaine coming up from the South, all that gets distributed by these baseline gang members, and that has to be looked at honestly, otherwise you're gonna have another decaying gang city, and the problem with that is it's gonna spill over and it's just going to get worse and more yeah, dangerous. Yeah, innocent people are getting killed now like crazy, and neighborhoods are being terrorized and destroyed. I don't know of anybody doing this. I don't know of anybody in the country, I don't know any governor, any mayor, anybody trying to get this under control. Mr. Cohen, thanks very much. We appreciate your time. This is the No Spin News Weekend Edition. You may know that we have a foreign news partner. I've mentioned it before. It's the dailychatter.com. And we work with Daily Chatter because we don't have our own foreign correspondents, and they do, to accumulate information all over the world. And if you go to dailychatter.com every day, there's a very readable uh, dispatch, and you'll learn a lot. I do. I get it every morning. Okay. The guy who runs it is named Phil Balboni, and I used to work for Mr. Balboni as a local reporter slash analyst in Boston at WCBB-TV, a classic television station. All right, Phil, I got to ask you a series of questions, and I want your best take on it. So okay, all, no. over the, all over the internet, it's 
Russia's now winning the war against Ukraine. Is that true? They're beginning to advance on the front lines in some key places. So they're not winning yet, but they are definitely, um, they have momentum. Whereas the war was stalemated for quite a long time. So the Russians took Bakhmut. Uh, many of your viewers will remember that name. And now just last week, they took Avdivka, another kind of strategic town. Uh, and they're attacking in a couple of other places along the line, which is 600 miles long. Uh, so I would say uh, Russia is not winning, but they are they are moving in the in the direction of winning. Yeah. OK. What is the goal for Putin? Total domination of Ukraine? I don't think so. I think he wants to keep what he's won. So Crimea, which Russia took in 2014, along with part of the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, but getting um, Crimea was a huge thing for Putin personally. And uh, I think he wants to protect that. All right. So he and wants a treaty that says we're going to stop this war, but wherever Russia is in Ukraine, Russia gets to keep. I that think, it? yeah, well, he's made a lot of advances since 2014. So now the territory that Russia took. Um, yeah, the eastern part of the Two country. years ago when the war when, when the war began, two years ago. Uh, this Sunday, by the way, so it's the second anniversary of the war already. Um, they gained a lot of territory. I think Putin okay. would like to keep that. I don't think he feels now that he is any way he is going to take all of Ukraine. That's not going to happen. Okay. So he doesn't want to occupy the whole country. That would be, you know, because he's yeah. taken a lot of casualties. There was a British report out yesterday that 300,000 casualties the Russians have taken. Do you believe it's that high? I do. Yeah, really? I do. I think the Ukrainians have lost over 100. Wow. 300,000 Russians, 100,000 Ukrainians. Now, as you know, there's a 90 million, uh, I'm sorry, billion with a B, 90 billion dollar aid package that's being held up in Congress now, although it did pass the Senate by a wide margin, 70 to 29, uh, to send more material and uh, to Ukraine. Um, I think this will get through eventually, but the delay is helping Putin, correct? It definitely is. Yeah. I mean, I think the Ukrainians are running out of soldiers. They're running out of weapons, uh, ammunition, uh, artillery shells. So um, every day, every week that goes by that uh, more aid isn't delivered to them, they are losing. And I think that's been part of some of the recent setbacks that they've had is uh, because. Well, why they, why they, aren't the NATO countries uh, delivering ordnance and arms to them? Why, why is it all on us? They are. No, the Germans are, the French have been, uh, the Dutch, uh, the Polish, um, and others have been delivering money um, and weapons. But it's not enough because, you know, they stopped really preparing for Russia uh, during the end, after the end of the Cold War. So believe it or not, they don't have enough weapons factories to build the artillery shells, the tanks, to make the bullets. So they can't yeah. manufacture stuff like we can. All right, let's switch over to Israel. Um, so Netanyahu is a guy who's going to do what 
Netanyahu wants. It doesn't matter who pressures him. Am I right in that assessment? Yep. You are. Okay. So yeah, you're going to do what he wants. And the Israeli people want Hamas to be destroyed. But I don't think you can destroy the entire terror network of Hamas. Am I wrong? You can't. You, no, you're right there, too. So, you know, Israel, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, claim they've killed 14,000 Hamas fighters since the war began. Today is day 138 of the war. But, you know, by all estimates, there were up to 40,000 Hamas fighters before the war began on October 7th. So, you know, simple math tells you that there's a lot of people left to fight. And that doesn't include the young men in Gaza who probably would do anything to put on a uniform or whatever they wear and, uh, and join the battle. And fight the Jews. All and right, so Netanyahu's Jews. end game then is uh, getting the hostages back and killing as many radical um, Palestinians as he can. That seems to be what we're looking at. It does. He does not have a, a game plan for when the war stops, when the shooting stops. And that is the biggest problem of all, is that, you know, since 1948, um, the Jews and the Palestinians have lived sometimes in peace, sometimes in war, but they've never found a permanent solution. And until one is found, um, even if the fighting stopped tomorrow, it wouldn't stop forever. No, I know. To, I, and yeah. when you hear this two-party state, there aren't two parties. There's Israel, but there's no Palestinian united front to negotiate no. with it. So there's the Palestinian Authority, but they're very weak. They're weak. I mean, yeah, they're right. Weak. They're okay, so Iran is involved with Hezbollah and to some extent Hamas, uh, and they want this war to continue forever. Correct? They do because it it. It's all to their advantage. They have all of their um, proxies in Lebanon, you know, in Gaza itself, uh, in Syria in particular, in Iraq, in Yemen, uh, you know, uh, militias and others that they arm uh, and support and train. Uh, so anything that ties down the United States is a plus for Iran. Right. And they're not going to stop. I mean, they're going to create violent chaos wherever they are. And they are arming and financing Hamas, Hezbollah, as you mentioned, the Houthis in Yemen, yeah. and on and on and on. So that doesn't seem like there's any hope there at all, because the Mullahs are just not going to stop. No. But you know, there are, there are good actors here. So the Saudis would like the fighting to stop. The Qataris, who are helping yeah, negotiate for the ceasefire. Right. And bad Egypt, for business. That's right. Bad for business. Egypt, you know, wants the fighting to stop. So there are people who will help and support and help to rebuild Gaza. But um, the Israeli government has to be willing to compromise, and they've not so far. Okay. But they had before October 7th. And if it were the United States that had suffered, and we, you know, you saw what happened after 9 11. I mean, what we did. So you got you to gotta keep that in mind. Why do you think the United Nations hates Israel so much? Well, I, I don't think I would put it that way, Bill. I mean, I think um, the United Nations, do you mean the secretariat or do you mean the countries no, the, that make the up countries, the countries, I mean, when you vote 
Every country votes for an immediate ceasefire with no hostage release or anything else. That works to Israel's disadvantage. I think the United Nations hates Israel. I don't, I don't agree. Um, uh, I think that it's hard for us in the United States, which is one of the reasons why I created my company to help people get more information about the world. The rest of the world is not uh, supportive of what Israel is doing right now. And, um, you but know, 29,000. Why? why? After well, because... that horror on October 7, you would feel everybody say, look, Israel's justified to try to get these Hamas terrorists out of there. Why aren't they, they are. sympathetic? They are sympathetic to that. But, I mean, I'm sure you realize that 29,000 Gazans have been killed since the war began, most of them women and children. They have had 30,000 airstrikes. That's over 200 every day. 80% of all the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. It's been a I think by any measure, they've overdone it. Nobody objects or disagrees. They have a right to defend themselves. It's how they've gone about it. That's Did we overdo it uh, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Personally, I, I think we, we did what we had to do there. All right. So it's a debatable issue, but I still think that there is an anti-Israel bent inside the United Nations. Led by, Af yes. led by African countries, interestingly enough, South Africa and this and that. And I'm going, wait, wait a minute, you guys are the underdogs in Africa. Israel certainly the underdog. Why aren't you sympathetic? Uh, do you have a, any perspective on that? I think it's their colonial, colonialist history. Colonial I mean, thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I got it. All right, last question for you. Uh, you managed me for uh, a little while in the 1980s. That must have been hell. Did <laughs> it wasn't actually. I mean, I want your viewers to know that you were uh, you were a damn good reporter, and um, you. you know you were you were a pleasure to work with. I mean, you're the same guy you were 40 years ago. Uh, you know, uh, very confident, smart, sometimes a little opinionated. Uh, maybe you rub some of your colleagues the wrong way from time to time, but uh, no, you were great, and that's why we've been friends 40 well, years. Yeah. There were two news directors that were outstanding, and I'm going to have the other one from WCBS uh, TV on next week. Um, oh, good. Steve Cohen, you know him. Steve Cohen, um, right. And, but when I was working for you uh, in Boston, and Boston is my second home, as you know. I mean, and when I go to Boston, everybody thinks I'm from Southie. Um, I was different than uh, most of the other reporters because I was you so... Brash, B-R-A-S-H. And I and remember that you do something we'd never let anybody else do before, which was to do commentary yeah. on, on the 11 o'clock news. That was that was a first. Uh, you know, and first. that was interesting because the ratings went up because I was monitoring them. And the reason yeah. that you and Coppersmith, the general manager, put me on was that, and this is fascinating, after the weather in Boston, everybody turned off and go to sleep. But then sure. you put this madman O'Reilly on at the end of the show, hoping that people would stay up, which they right. did. But which they did. <laughs> the funny thing about it was that the reigning queen of news in Boston, Natalie Jacobson, huge, yes. huge anchor up there. 
She hated me. <laughs> she she would just look at me like, what what is this? I think she, I think you threatened her a little bit. <laughs> well, I threatened everybody, but you stuck up to her. I mean, you said, no, nah, we're doing this for the good of the whole newscast here, Natalie. Right. And right. and I admired that very much because I knew she wouldn't even introduce me. She wouldn't even read the lead. Her husband, Jed <laughs> Curtis, who was the co-anchor, had to do it. Right. So we anyway. Had an amazing, we had an amazing team. I mean, I'm sure many of your viewers remember the 1980s in television news. It really was the, that the was golden the, age. The that golden was the age. apex. Absolutely. We had standards. You sent reporters all over the world. I remember we did. Martha Raddatz, who's now on ABC. She yep. sent her to the Philippines when they had the big yep. uproar there. I mean, it was exactly. really... It was really, number one, a pleasure to work with you, which is why we've stayed in touch all these years. And number two, it had a tremendous impact, Channel 5 in Boston, on the whole New England area. That's gone. And I'm not yeah. quite sure why it disappeared. Last word, do you know why? Because the viewers aren't there anymore. I mean, you know, people have migrated off to, uh, you know, a hundred or a thousand or a million different places. Uh, you know, the, that 11 o'clock news that um, people watched you on in the 1980s, I bet the audience is maybe 25% of what it used of to be. Of what it was. Yeah, they're all yeah. scattered. Yeah. All right, Phil yeah, Baboni, it's dailychatter, one word, dot com. Can't get much easier than that. If you're interested in foreign news, and it's straight. It's straight. Yes. Okay. Nonpartisan. Yeah. I want everybody to go. And check it out. Thanks, Phil. Good to see you, man. Take care. Great to see you, Bill. Be good. Okay. Here's the gem from the No Spin News Vault. All right, free speech. So is it under siege in America? In my opinion, it is. But this goes back a while. Let's go back to 1925, almost 100 years ago, when the most famous free speech case in history was evolving. This was about the teaching of evolution in public schools. Before 1925, most public schools were not allowed to teach evolution. They had to say, God created everything, and evolution, no, couldn't mention it. Okay. Clarence Darrow, you know the name, very famous attorney. He takes up the case, and he wins in Tennessee. Now, there is a book just came out yesterday called Trial of the Century. And it chronicles what happened in the most famous free speech case in America. It's written by Greg Jarrett. You may know him, Fox News legal analyst and uh, a guy I've known for decades who never seems to age. Jarrett always kind of got the little Dick Clark thing coming down. Doesn't really seem to age very much. And uh, he wrote the book. All right, so congrats on the book. We hope people will check it out. Very important subject. You know I write history books, and yours is a history book as well. Right. What was the most important thing you learned, you yourself, from the research you did for this book? Well, I took a cue from you. When you write your books, you make them exciting. Uh, history can be exciting if you're a good storyteller. So, frankly, I tried to emulate you. Uh, the climactic moment in the trial is when Clarence Darrow, who's out of options, he knows he's losing, 
The jury's against him. The judge and ordained minister is against him. And Scopes is about to be convicted. And on the other side is the great fundamentalist leader, William Jennings Bryan, who's the prosecutor in the case who helped to get this law passed, criminalizing the teaching of evolution. And what does Darrow do? He does something extraordinary, Bill. He calls the prosecutor to the witness stand, and the judge is mortified. You can't do that. But Darrow was counting on Brian's ego, who then stood up and said, Your Honor, I have no fear. I'm happy to give testimony to everyone about how the Bible should be taken literally. And so the judge is so worried the courtroom is going to collapse because, you know, there's hundreds of people packed in there. People are fainting because of the searing heat in the summer of Tennessee, 1925. So they moved the cross-examination of Brian by Darrell outside on a platform left over from the 4th of July activities. I have a picture in the book where you can see thousands of people convened in front of the platform. And there are these two lions, two great orators, icons in American history, facing off. And in the end, Darrell utterly destroyed Brian, so much so that a broken man, just days later, he lays down for a nap and he never wakes up. Wow. I did not know it's that. It's a remarkable story. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Brian dies shortly after uh, um, Darrow dissects him on the stand. Now, Americans believe that freedom of speech is, you know, sacrosanct in stone. But as we just used a setup, now, if you speak your mind, even a responsible person like Sam, Samantha Ponder, you can be labeled and you can be condemned and you can be maligned and defamed. And there's nothing you can do about that, is there? No, very little. And social media, as valuable in some ways that it is, is to blame. I mean, look, people can create fake accounts, fake names. They can say whatever they want. Uh, and they can't be held accountable. And, you know, uh, frankly, neither can the platforms uh, under current law. So, you know, what we're seeing in America today is the same free speech rights that are under assault bill, whether it is, you know, partisan censorship in political discourse or polarizing disinformation campaigns, classroom indoctrination, a punitive cancel culture under the guise of social justice, whereby, and we see this almost every day, uh, conformity of thought uh, supplants robust debate. And that's why this story, the trial of the century, is so important because, Bill, history is now repeating itself. I agree with you 100% on that. Um, and it even even worse than what you say, because the corporate media controls information flow. Yes, you can go on the Internet and you can hear private voices. But the mass media flow is now controlled by these large corporations who basically blackball and silence people they don't like. So when mm -hmm. I was on the factor on Fox News, as you well know, I was on Letterman and Leno and uh, the view when Barbara Walters was there and all the network morning shows, I could spread my message. All right. 
Now, you won't see anybody from Fox on any of those shows, all right? They're blacked out. They're canceled. Nobody, okay, can get access to that. Publishing industry, you want to write a contrarian book, don't go to Simon & Schuster, okay? Although they have a new CEO and, and maybe he'll change, and I hope he does change the culture. But it's very, very hard now if you don't conform to the leftist view of the world that the major corporations have embraced, you're shut down completely. And that's not freedom of speech. No, Bill, it's not. And in many ways, I also blame the mainstream media have been witting accessories to the erosion and the assault on on free speech. Uh, I mean, just look at their conduct in the phony Trump-Russia collusion narrative that they drove. Yeah. Uh, you know, they never bothered to verify or corroborate any or of the apologize. Yeah, or, or apologize. Or apologize. I mean, they won, they won Pulitzer Prizes. The New I York know. Times Washington Post for getting I, the that, story fundamentally a, wrong. That says it all. All right. The book is uh, Trial of the Century. I've started it. It's very interesting to read it. And particularly if you are interested in your country and whether we can make a comeback in the freedom of speech area. Do you think we can, Jarrett? Last question. Can we make a comeback and and have robust debate, as you put it? Well, I'm deeply worried that we cannot. We we are seeing, you know, books books being banned, art shows being censored. It seems to be getting worse and worse. It reminds me of the Joe McCarthy Red Scare era of the 1950s, yep. in which if you, if you dared to dissent, you were punished. You bet. All right, Greg Jarrett, thanks very much for taking the time. Good luck with the book. Thank you for listening to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. To watch the full episodes of the No Spin News, visit BillOReilly.com and sign up to become a premium or concierge member. That's BillOReilly.com. Sign up and start watching today.